Well, I've mentioned many times before, I think we hit one extra light, or something's really bright up here, I'm not sure what it is. Um, I mentioned many times before that um, I grew up in West Virginia, and now, I don't know if you've been to West Virginia or not, it's known as a coal mining state, and there is beautiful, a lot of uh, great mountains and things, but not a lot of people go there, it's not a, uh, a real popular state to visit. But one of the coolest things that I think of anywhere, if you ever get a chance to go, as kids we used to go to a place called Green Bank, and at Green Bank, there was this observatory, and uh, there were these huge telescopes that were radio telescopes that were tuned to the skies, listening for any signs of life in the universe. And we, you learn a lot of really cool educational stuff there, but it's pretty amazing to know that there's multiple telescopes like these or whatever, satellites, that they're, they're tuned in to find out if anything else exists, intelligent life out in the universe, listening for these signs of life. And this idea of signs of life today, just kind of that, that expression grabbed me as Jesus is talking to Nicodemus in John chapter 3, a very familiar passage of Scripture. And in this passage, Nicodemus comes and he knows a lot. He's a very intellectual guy. He's very much a religious insider of the day. But there's no signs of true spiritual life in his life. And in spite of all his religion, he has never experienced a true transformation through belief in Jesus, trust in Jesus. So as we look at this passage today, I want to go back and pick up a few verses from chapter 2. And so if you want to turn to chapter 2, verse 23, and I've told you as you turn there, I've, I've encouraged you, I know that it's great, the app has notes, but I, I love my study Bibles and I love my Bibles that have notes sections in the side where you can take notes as you learn things. And a Bible where you can keep notes is something that's going to last forever because you're not going to get rid of it. And so I, that's why I like having a journaly Bible. And so you may want to look into that. It's a great chance. There's so much good content in this passage of Scripture. And taking these notes will help you as one day you go back to reread it, that the notes will still be there as opposed to the app where you will never see those again after probably this week. But the app is a great thing. If, you're not, if you don't have one of these, so I encourage you to get one. So let's pray, and we'll look at John chapter 2, verse 23, and we'll go through verse 13 of chapter 3. Father God, I thank you for your word, and as we sang uh, just a few minutes ago, it's your word that you speak and give us life and give us truth, and God, you awaken our spirit, and you awaken uh, your will within us through your word, God, and I pray that your word will truly uh, be put to to use as the lamp for our feet and the light for our path. God, help us to see that we need your word in order to not just survive this world, but to live in a way that you've called us, which is for your glory and your honor. In Jesus' name, amen. So chapter 2, verse 23, we got a lot, so we're going to move kind of fast. Verse 23, uh, Jesus here at the Passover festival, and he's talking, and I want you to remember as we read this that there's no chapter breaks, there's no verse references in the originals, and so it flows right together. So you miss something if you don't see this. So verse 23, while Jesus was in Jerusalem during the Passover festival, many believed in his name when they saw the signs he was doing. Jesus, however, would not entrust himself to them since he did not know them all because and because he did not need anyone to testify about man or tell him who's real, who's not, for he himself knew what was in man. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. And so Jesus says, look, I don't need anybody to tell me who's real and who's not real, and here's exhibit A 
in what we see is happening in first century Judaism and what still happens today is here's a guy who's religious and he says that he knows a lot of spiritual things about God, but God doesn't know him. Jesus doesn't know him. Jesus doesn't recognize him, and he doesn't testify to him. So Jesus knows what's in man, and here's a man who comes to Jesus to talk about spiritual matters. Verse 2, this man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, I know we, I, I, we know that you are a teacher come from God for no one can do the, th the signs that you do unless God is with him. And if you're tracking with us in John, this is week eight. This is the first real in-depth conversation that Jesus has had with someone that's been recorded. And Nicodemus, this guy comes to him, and Nicodemus is, as I said, the ultimate religious insider of the day. I mean, this guy is literally the Hebrew equivalent of a seminary professor, a federal judge, and an elder all rolled into one package. This guy is part of the, probably part of the Sanhedrin. He's one of the elite 70 people on this group. And this guy knows the Old Testament. Not only does he know the Old Testament, as I mentioned back in week one, he memorized a great deal of the Bible, a great deal of the Old Testament. And I thought it was interesting when I came across this in week one, if you weren't here to repeat this, that when a Pharisee family had a child, when they got to be three, four, five years old, they literally put honey up on the Torah, up on the Old Testament, and had the kid lick it off because they wanted the kid to know that sweet and are the words, like honey, are the words of God, and they're sweet to his mouth, Psalm 119, 103, which, by the way, anybody read Psalm 119 last week? Uh, Roy's assignment. Roy, look around, check, take notes who, who did your assignment or not. And so these guys were strict law keepers. In fact, to the point which sometimes when you look at these guys in the, in the New Testament, in their interactions with Jesus, we kind of look at them as being really bad dudes because they were so confrontational. But the thing is, they thought they, at some level, they were doing the right thing and they were focusing in on the Word of God, the Old Testament. And, and they began to keep the Word, but over the centuries, they, not, they decided that it wasn't just enough to keep the law, that they had to add a lot of stuff on top of the law in order to keep it precisely and make sure they never break it. And they created this works-based salvation based upon their interpretation of the Old Testament. And then they began to add more and more and force these fundamental rules upon the people. And Jesus said that not only do you not get into the kingdom, but you prohibit other people from getting into the kingdom as well because you're more fundamental than God. You set yourself up to be more of an authority than God is. And then on top of that, they looked down upon people. They had great pride in their, their hearts. They saw people who were, had infirmities, who were ill, were sick. These people, God's wrath was on them. And kind of like the health and wealth prosperity of today, if God had given you uh, status and wealth and those things, then that's a sign of God's blessing. And they interpreted then these people who were of mixed races. These people were against God. They were anti-God. And so they created this whole system that was based upon pride. And the bottom line is, I think they, they just lost a love for people. And God says, you can't love him without loving people. You can't love God without loving people. John says this, in his book of 1 John chapter 4, verse 20, he says, If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he does not love his brother, who, for if he does not love his brother who he can't see, he can see, how can he love God who he doesn't see? So how can I say I love God who I don't physically see if I can't love you who I see? 
And so these were the guys that Jesus was dealing with, and this is particularly Nicodemus who represented the belief of the Pharisees at this time, and he comes to Jesus, and, and he makes a point, John does, to point out that he comes at night. Some people will say, well, maybe he was scared, he was timid, maybe he wanted to make sure the other Pharisees didn't know what was going on and what he was doing. But I, I think, based upon my study, that this was symbolic. John uses a lot of symbolism in his writing, and he talks a lot about light and darkness. And so I think that it's symbolic. He's pointing out, it really happened, he came at night, but he's pointing out that that uh, Nicodemus was still in spiritual darkness. And so he comes to Jesus at night. He's in spiritual darkness, but he refers to Jesus in a respectful way. Verse 2, he says, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one could do these signs that you do unless God is with him. So referring to Jesus as Rabbi is interesting because Nicodemus was the guy with all the diplomas on the wall. He was the guy who was the educated one who knew the Torah. He was the one who went through all the schools in order to become who he was. Jesus is the one with no degrees on the wall. Jesus was the guy who had no formal education that we know of in Judaism. And so Jesus, he refers to as a teacher. He respects him as a teacher and interpreter of the law. And during this time, there were rabbis who would gather, teacher, gather disciples, students around them, and they would become teachers of the law. And these people were exalted in Israel. And Jesus, though, by the way, side note, he was critical of these rabbis, of these teachers. In Matthew, he said that they had this exaggerated place in Israel, and he noted that they desired compliments and they desired attention more than they desired to be servants to the people and, and serve God and serve the people. And that's a, a great reminder of our culture today where we see on TV where pastors and preachers can be elevated to the point of being a celebrity and people sit and cheer these people on and act like you know they're a rock star. So dangerous, super dangerous. And it begins to, to build pride up in people and make people believe that they have this special word from God and, and, and you look at me, I'm authority. But here's the thing, you look at these people and you look at me, you look at our elders, at some point we are going to let you down. Amen? Can I get an amen on that, right? I'm going to let you down. I'm going to. I'm human. I still struggle. I still have my battles just like you do. And as I'm diving into the Word and, and knowing God, obviously, and we're going to see this today, we should be coming more and more like Christ. Christ is formed more and more in me, and He should be formed more and more in you. But the truth is, Jesus pointed out, don't call these people by these special names and refer to them by these special titles, because if you put your eyes upon people, you're missing the point. But Nicodemus, he, he, it appears he doesn't mean any disrespect. It means all respect to him. And he points out, hey, we believe, Jesus, that you came down from God. Why did he conclude this? Verse 2, because no one could do these signs that you're doing. Nobody could do these miracles that you're doing if God wasn't with him. So Nicodemus is very impressed with Jesus' miracles and his signs and his wonders. And as I mentioned a few weeks ago in my Monday email, those of us who grew up in church, and maybe back in the day when you had the flannel graph, you know, and your teacher set up the little stories. And, you know, it seemed like every story as a kid was a miraculous story, right? I mean, Moses parting the Red Sea, you know. You had Moses and his power staff doing crazy things. And you heard all these stories, and you begin to think that, like, miracles and signs and wonders are like an everyday occurrence during Bible times. And then you're scratching your head, like, why isn't that happening today? Well, th during the course of the writing of the Scriptures, the miracles, the signs, and wonders are actually pretty sporadic and pretty rare. And when Jesus 
came along, there were lots of signs and lots of wonders because God authenticated his work. Throughout the Bible, as you read scripture, when God is getting ready to do something really big and great, he authenticates that through signs and wonders and miracles. And so when Jesus came along, he's the biggest miracle and sign and wonder from God that could be possible. And so here he is, every chapter of every verse in the Gospels almost has something supernatural in it by Jesus because Jesus is God and he's come to, uh, to humanity to reveal God to them and show them the true God. And so it, it, it's not that these miracles were everyday occurrences. So the truth is Nicodemus was impressed by these things because chances are he had never seen a miracle, a true miracle take place. He had never seen a true sign. So he, he's a student of the word he was a teacher. He taught about the signs and wonders and miracles. But it's one thing to be a teacher of it, and it's another thing to experience and see it. And as we talked in week one, the book of the Gospels, the life of Christ, happened after a 400-year period of silence from God, where there was no revelation, no prophetic word. And so there was a big, huge gap of time where God was not working the way that he worked in the Old Testament among the people, and he was preparing them for Jesus to come. And so here Jesus comes, and, and he does these signs, and he does these wonders. And Nicodemus has no doubt that God's with him, because nobody could do this stuff, he says in verse 2, if God is not with him. But he doesn't recognize Jesus for who he is. He doesn't recognize Jesus as the Messiah. He doesn't see him as God. He sees him as a, as a messenger from God, which is big, but it, it falls short of true understanding of Jesus and who he is. And Jesus knows that he's being respectful because of the title he uses and so on. But he has to see Jesus, Nicodemus does, as more than just a powerful teacher. He has to see him as God. So do we see God correctly? Do we see Christ correctly? We truly live in an age where so many pastors and churches are geared around the fact that it's almost like a therapeutic gospel where we want to give you something to make you feel better about yourself and, and like lift you up and you're the center. And we got to be really careful sometimes because songs can reinforce the fact that you're the center of life. You're the center of everything. And it's almost like God is an addition to your life to help you thrive and be happier and more blessed in life. And sometimes the prayers that we pray reinforce this too. God bless me. God, bless my kids, bless my family, bless my life, bless us. And, and Paul tells us that we've received every spiritual blessing in Christ Jesus already at salvation. Can Truthfully, can you be blessed much more than you've been blessed already spiritually? That Christ is in you, as we'll see in a second. Christ is in you. You have the Holy Spirit. You have the Word of God. You have community. You have the body of Christ. What else do you need, 2 Peter 1, do you need to, to add to your faith, to continue to grow and allow Christ to be formed more and more in you. You've been blessed beyond all that you can imagine. Jesus has come. He's given you everything that you need. And so he must be seen more than a powerful teacher or some therapeutic presence with you that strengthens you and makes you feel better. Jesus is life for the glory of God. And he takes your life and he makes you a living sacrifice. And that's your spiritual act of worship to God. And so it's not about us. We die. We no longer live. Christ lives within us. Verse 3. So Jesus says, truly, truly, or amen, amen. I'm, I'm telling you, hear this. It's truth. I say to you, unless one is born again, 
He cannot see the kingdom of God. He can't see the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God was a much-discussed topic during this time. When's it going to happen? Who's going to be the king? What's it going to look like? This was a very common conversation in Israel. And it's important to know this context because we don't think in terms of kings and kingdoms much anymore. But they saw the Romans, and they were God's people, and this falls really deep into the context of this passage. They were from Abraham. They had this pride. They were sons of God. What in the world is going on here? God, when are you bringing your kingdom in? Your rule and your reign. So at a minimum, the Jewish understanding of the kingdom would be the realm where God's authority was recognized and then his will would be obeyed. That was at a minimum what the, they believed the kingdom would be. And there were competing ideas about what the Messiah would be. Some had, uh, would be a lower view of the Messiah, that he would be more like a political leader who would come in and he would run out the, the Romans out and he would set up the prominence of the kingdom like David and Solomon. And then there was a higher view that a Messiah would be a heavenly redeemer figure. And he would bring the end of the age and, and participation in the kingdom would be to experience eternal life and a resurrected life. And those who had died would be resurrected. And so regardless of what view Nicodemus had of Jesus and of the kingdom, clearly it fell short because Jesus said, you're not there because you've got to be born again. So Nicodemus here, he spent his entire life focusing on how to do the right stuff in order to get into the kingdom. And here Jesus says, you're not there. You've got to be born again. I don't care how religious you are, Nicodemus. I don't care how much you know about Scripture, Nicodemus. You're lost. So imagine the shock. If anybody thought they had earned a spot on the team, right? If they weren't part of the kingdom, it would have been Nicodemus. But Jesus said, you don't qualify. I love what commentator D.A. Carson says. He says, if Nicodemus, with his knowledge, gifts, understanding, position, and integrity, cannot enter the promised kingdom by virtue of his standing and works, what hope is there for anyone who seeks salvation along such lines? Hear that. Especially if you come from a background where the gospel was, me and Jesus are going to work our way in, or me and Jesus are going to do this thing together and figure it out so I get in at the end. You know, and at the end, if I've been pretty good, and maybe I'll tip the scales over, and God will let me into the kingdom. And it's so shocking and it's so sad that many people sit in gospel presentations and hear the gospel of grace time and time again, but still walk out with this opinion that i got to do something to earn my way. Well, do you see it? What D.A. Carson's saying, that if Nicodemus, by his merit and by his education and by his passion for God's word, couldn't make it in without being born again, seriously, is there any hope for you if that's what you're trying to do? If you're trying to do the effort and do the stuff in order to get in, you're not going to do it. And Nicodemus is a perfect example of that. So Jesus says, truly, truly, like literally, I'm telling you, this is so important, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And this, this concept, born again, is very familiar, churchy expression for us who grew up in church, if you did. Even if you just grew up in the American culture, it's a, a common expression now, when John uses this, and he does this a lot, he uses this term that has two meanings to it. And, and what's interesting, he does this a lot, and both meanings are true. And so when he says born again, some of your versions may say 
you're born from above, if you're reading and following along in certain versions, as a place, born from above. And then others, it says born again, born of a time, as a time. And so which one is it? Jesus is, is doing a play on words here. I think he's saying both, but he's emphasizing that it's a birth that's supernatural. It's from above. It's not of this earth. But Nicodemus hears, and he focuses primarily in on this born again thing. And he, and he asks, just like we would if we heard something this crazy. He says, like, how is that possible, Jesus? I mean, how can I be reborn? Look at verse 4. Nicodemus said to Jesus, how can a man be born when he's old? Can he... Enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born. Imagine the confusion. I'm not sure how that's going to work, Jesus. Uh, okay, I'm going to be born again by my mom. I, I, I dread telling my mom that news, all right? This, this is going to be a little awkward for both of us, right? I mean, it's going to be weird. And Jesus obviously puts a stop to that line of thinking and says, look, we're not talking about this kind of physical birth. Jesus is saying that he's starting a new family in which your ordinary physical birth is not what matters. That's not enough. You being born into the tribe and family of Israel, you being a, a, a Pharisee and teacher of the law, it's not enough. He says, verse 5, truly, truly, I say to you, he says it again, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. You can't get in, Nicodemus, unless you're born of water and of the Spirit. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel when I say to you, you must be born again. So he keeps repeating this over and over again. And he's just really trying to flip just Nicodemus's theology upside down. He's trying to show him, look, buddy, being of Abraham's heritage and lineage is not what matters. Being born with the right pedigree is not what matters. Being born of the flesh is not what's mattered. And the accepted religious thought of that day would have been that apart from the Jews who completely just apostasy, abandoned Judaism, or those who just committed just terrible, horrible sins, that all would be let into the kingdom because of Abraham and because of their seed, because they were Jews. And that was the common thought of the day. So unless it was deliberate apostasy or just extreme wickedness, you're going to get in because of who you are. And Jesus is telling him, that's not what gets you in. You have to be born again. You have to be born from above. We're not talking about physical birth, Nicodemus. We're not talking about your mom here. We're talking about born from above. Verse 5, again, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. Now, there's much debate over this expression, born, that born of water. What is he talking about there, born of water? And there's some really good competing ideas, and I'll be honest with you, if you remember those who went through the membership class, you remember the rings that show you things that are, these are orthodox and critical and essential, and then you go out, these are more opinions. Well, this is going to be on the outer edges. This is opinions, and different people are going to have different opinions about what he means by that, that, that one is born of water. What is he talking about? And I actually changed my ma- mind during my study uh, and went back to what I originally believed it was. As I studied, I changed, and then I flipped back again. So that's what I'm telling you. We're going to have different opinions. But here's the options here. The water of physical birth. All right? The water of physical birth. Born of water, he's talking about just being born as a human being. 
And he's talking about, you know, that water is associated, what happens, a woman's water breaks, right, when she's getting ready to have a baby. And so he's talking about being born physically. You have to be born physically, but on top of that, Nicodemus, you have to be born spiritually. And then he could be referring to Ezekiel, where Ezekiel uses this imagery of water, and he talks about this amazing prophetic thing that's going to happen in the last days. And that's a really good option as well. And then he could be pointing back to John's preaching, John the Baptist, where he's baptizing people with water, which shows the repentance of their heart, that their heart's been trans, uh, uh, has, has changed and, has, and God has done something in their life. And so through their baptism, they're showing this repentance that has taken place toward God. God, I'm turning back to you. So I, I originally thought that it was about physical birth. Then I kind of flipped over to maybe he's talking about John the Baptist because we've been talking about John the Baptist a lot. But now I'm back to the physical birth side, and here's why. As I kept on studying and looking at this passage, look at verse 5 and 6 and put it on the screen. I kind of keep that up there just for a second. He says, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water, okay, let's think physical for a second, and of spirit, that's supernatural, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. And then he draws this parallel again. He says, that which is born of flesh, so I think born of flesh points back up to the born of water idea, and that which is born of the Spirit, capital S, Spirit, is Spirit. Do not marvel that I say you must be born again. So he's saying again, he's saying, look, you were born, but being born means that you're born no matter what your pedigree is and no matter who you say your father is. If you're born physically, you're born into sin by nature of Adam, and you give birth to other human beings who are born into sin of flesh. And so you need something different than just a physical birth because being born into the right family doesn't, is not what matters. It matters is that you're born of the Spirit. So that which is born of the Spirit is Spirit. Only God's Spirit can produce spiritual life. He's saying it requires this interchange in our hearts given to us by a direct act from God, that God extends his mercy through the Spirit and initiates in us this response of faith in Jesus, and this radical change takes place. So think about it for a second. All right, if you've ever given birth, praise you moms for doing that, all right, if you've ever watched someone give birth, you have much respect for ladies that give birth, right? If you know, if you've been there, you've done that, or you've watched it, you know what a radical thing that is. When our firstborn, Shelby, was born, we all just were bawling like babies in, in the delivery room. And actually, the, the doctor was a little taken back. He was like, well, that's, I don't see everybody react that way. I can't imagine how you could react, react less because of the miracle of this little child coming into the world. It's radical. And so the fact that Jesus compares the new birth to a physical birth, the birth of the flesh, means that something radical happens, something crazy takes place. And that's where this signs of life idea has to be there, because when we have life within us, things have to change. I could go on and on about all the scriptures that talk about God's going to take a heart of stone and replace it with a heart of flesh that He's going to give us the Holy Spirit, that He's going to give us a new nature. 
He, he gives us just a, a heart that now has just is beating for him and for his will and for what he desires. And so our passions in life, our motivations in life, our desires in life become his. And he begins to change us from the inside out. And Jesus said, that's the work of the Holy Spirit. And Paul says we have the mind of Christ, meaning that our heart is not this beating organ in our chest, but our heart is the steering wheel of our life. It's, it's the thing that drives us. It's who we really are. And it's the motives and the things that we do, the passions that we have. That's our heart. And so when Jesus says that you're going to get a new heart, and when Jesus says that he's come to give you life and give it to you by the, for the fullest, he's talking about just a whole change of direction for your life, that you're born naturally of the flesh, you pursue, makes sense, flesh pursues flesh, that you're going to pursue the things that feel good to you, that seem right to you, that make you content and comfortable and happy. But you get this new heart, and this transformation takes place. You have the mind of Christ. He's giving you the Holy Spirit. All of a sudden, His desire, His word, His will becomes what's most important to you. And it becomes all about Jesus in your life. And so just like an actual physical birth is this radical thing that happens where this new life comes into the world, your spiritual birth is amazing. This born again, something radical, and I can't stress it enough, radical happens where you're no longer you anymore. That you've been given a new identity. You're in Christ. You're a new creation. The old, Scripture says, is gone. That old following the desires of my old self and those are my passions. That's what's driving me. That's gone. doesn't mean that we don't still struggle and, and we can fall back into these patterns for periods of time even. But Jesus keeps wooing you and pulling you back if you're his. If you're what the scripture calls you're his elect. That he doesn't let you go. He doesn't say, see you later. I'm out of here because you're not following me closely. He pursues you. He woos you. He says, you're my child. I'm not going to let you go. And regardless of what happens in your life, I'm not working against you. I'm for you. Because why? So you can be more blessed? No, because you are my instrument to be a city on a hill, a light to the world, to be my ambassador. And so I'm not going to abandon you because I've chosen you to be the one who carries my name to this culture and to this generation. And I've chosen us collectively as a church to represent Jesus, God says. So God's going to abandon you to figure it out. He didn't, you didn't do anything to get there in the first place, and he's not going to abandon you on your own. He's going to be there to woo you and drive you and, and, and call you back to following him with a passion. And so that's born again. Take a break for a second and ask you a question, all right? Who has at home has your birth certificate framed up on the wall? Raise your hand. Who, when somebody comes over, do you say, hey, let me show you my birth certificate. Check this out. I'm alive. Right? That's silly, right? That's, that's stupid. But so many times, that's what happens in our southern culture, but really, it's not just southern, it's all over the United States, where we look back on this profession of faith, and we're like, good stuff. I did it. I made the decision. I said the sinner's prayer. Now I'm going to continue just to live my life for me and do my thing. And because I, 
I did what I was supposed to do. I got, I got my fire insurance there. Just look at my birth certificate, right? Scripture, again and again, says, what are the signs of life that are in you? Because when the Holy Spirit comes into your life, and Jesus uses this analogy, this metaphor as, as a wind, and it's actually a play on words here. I won't bore you with that. But he says, verse 8, the wind blows, verse 8, where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where, from where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit, that the Spirit does this mysterious work where He literally, truly changes you and changes me to be somebody we weren't before. And instead of looking back at our birth certificate, we live our lives as an example of I'm alive in Christ. I'm alive. By my fruits, they'll know that I'm His disciple. By your works, they see that your profession is real. The wind, this illustration of the wind. I just last week we were down at Mexico Beach. It's sure looking a lot better down there if you've been there in the in the last year or so. But you come across fields like this where there's just enormous numbers of trees just blown down. And you see the effect of the wind. None of us have ever seen the wind, but we see the power of the wind. We see the signs of the wind. We see its work. And while this wind is devastating, the wind of the Holy Spirit is about His power doing something amazing in our lives that we could never do upon our own. And the only way for us to be born again, to be transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light, is the, for the Spirit of God to draw you and to draw me and to woo us into the kingdom of God. It's His work of drawing us. And, and, and I think I'm so passionate about this because we see so many people who claim, look at my birth certificate, they claim to know Christ, but they don't care about all the other things that Jesus said, which is to live for Him and allow Him to be the Lord and to follow Him and to take up your cross and to live for Him. And, and the Holy Spirit, when He blows life into a person's soul, there's unmistakable evidence of the signs of life in their life. There's unmistakable evidence. I grew up in churches that were all about the birth certificate. They were all about just getting people, you know, to, you know, I'm going to sign you up here, put, put, put your name on a birth certificate, get you saved. And it became almost like a competition, right? Literally, like preachers would stand up and be so proud of how many people prayed the sinner's prayer and made a profession of faith. I mean, I read about one pastor who reported 4,000 professions of faith in five years of ministry. That's amazing, right? But his church grew from 98 to 100. All right, there's a problem, right? Uh, also, I read about a first-year missionary who reported 700 professions of faith, but only 21 belie uh, 25 believer baptisms. All right, there's a problem too. You see, you can't have the birth certificate without the life existing. There's life as a result of the birth. And so if you're going to be born again, born from above, then God's Spirit does something supernatural and something amazing in your life. When I was a youth pastor, I used to get this question a lot. How do, how do I know I'm saved? Like, I'm, I'm kind of nervous. I'm not really sure if I'm a believer. And here's what I'd walk them through. Do you know the gospel? What's the gospel? By grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. 
not of works, lest anyone should boast. Are you as good as Nicodemus? I don't think so. You're not going to get there through your efforts. Do you know the gospel of grace? Do you understand it? And in a word, the gospel is Jesus. It's all about him, right? And then the second thing I'd remind them of, and I remind you of this, your salvation is not based upon a feeling. It's not based upon a feeling. Because inevitably, if you live long enough in this life, you're going to go through periods where you're down and discouraged, depressed, tragedies, and, 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 and horrible unseen circumstances are going to hit your life. And you're going to be over here and you're going to go, God, I don't feel you. And maybe part of that is because of this idea of the blessing thing that we've bought into that is about me and God just making my life so great and grand and comfortable and easy that we bought into that. And then as soon as, which the word is very clear, that you're going to suffer. All who live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. That, that's as clear as John 3, 16. But as soon as that happens, we begin to not feel God. And I heard that a lot. God, where are you at? I don't feel you. It's not based upon a feeling. And then I'd walk him through a couple passages, one being 2 Corinthians, where he talked about testing yourself. And there's a lot of misunderstanding with this idea of testing yourself. I agree with John Piper. He does an excellent Ask Pastor John on this. I encourage you to look it up. But he talks about the context of this passage is about the Corinthians who were living in just unrepentant sin. They were just sinning and living life however they wanted to live pretty much. And Paul says, test yourself to see if you're in the faith. And so the context is, if you can just live in sin, I mean, I've known so many people throughout my years of ministry who said they were a believer, but were living a secret life, a secret affair, a, a, a secret stuff that their family didn't know about, their church family didn't know about. And here they were living for years and years this way. I, I've told you about a pastor who I looked up to, who found out 20 years later that he had had a mistress over in Texas, and he lived in Alabama. Married, 20 years, kids, grandkids, mistress. Are you living in unrepentant sin? You better test yourself. Because God's not going to let you get away with it that long. He disciplines his children. And then I talk about 2 Peter, which I mentioned earlier. And I love this passage. 2 Peter chapter 1, I encourage you to read this whole section, just briefly allude to it here. He talks about how that we're to add to our salvation. And he gives us a list of qualities we should be adding to our salvation. And then he says this, he says in verse 5 through 7, that if, you, if you're not adding to your salvation, if you're not growing, then you're going, to be, you're going to forget you were ever redeemed in the first place. That you're going to have this amnesia, am I even really, you know, truly a believer? And he's not saying you're not a believer, but he's saying, look, there's a, there's a problem here. Why are you not growing? And that's kind of examining yourself again. Look and see, why is there not growth in your life? And so he's urging them to demonstrate the reality of their calling. And so when the Spirit blows life into a person, there's signs of life. There's evidence. And I like the analogy of, of sailing when it comes to this because it's so hard to nail this down right because we know that salvation is not our effort, and we know that also our sanctification, becoming more like Christ, is not based upon our effort. So what does it look like? I like the, the idea of sailing. Uh, there's an expression that goes back hundreds of years that uh, the wind of God is always blowing but we have to hoist our sail. And so while it's God that does the work, we're not passive in this. It's not a motorboat where we control it and we tell God where we're going, but it's also not the lazy river raft where we lay back and like, okay, God, just do your work. I'm just going to lay here and just coast along while you work on me and change me. 
So think of it like a sailboat where you hoist the sail, but God provides the wind. The Spirit is the wind which moves you along to become more like Christ in your life. And He works in conjunction with the fountains of grace. We mentioned a few weeks ago His Word, the body of Christ, and those who come into your life to help you grow to be more like Him. So Nicodemus, very religious guy. Let's finish this off, verse 9. So Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? I don't get it. Jesus answered him, are you the teacher of Israel? And yet you do not understand these things. Again, confronting the Pharisees, leading people astray. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. Could be talking about him and the disciples. I think he's talking about the Holy Spirit, the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, the God the Holy Spirit. You don't receive our testimony. So basically, he's saying here, you're unwilling, Nicodemus, to put your confidence in me. You're a good guy. You've done good stuff. You are very religious. Why can't you trust me? It's a wheelbarrow thing I did a couple weeks ago, right? It's you're unwilling to get in and just let God be God and trust him to do what he's going to do in your life. It's the taking up your cross. I'm not just going to affirm it, but I'm, I'm embracing it with everything that I am, all that I am. And Nicodemus would not do that. He wasn't ready to put his confidence in Jesus. Verse 12, if I told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe it if I tell you heavenly things? So he, he's really challenging Nicodemus here. He's saying, look, I've used concrete examples like birth, and I've used wind, and I've shown my signs and my miracles to make this as plain as I can make it to you, Nicodemus. And here you are, this guy who says you know the Word and you understand the Word of God, but you're stumbling over these basic things. How are you going to comprehend the supernatural things like the regeneration of the Holy Spirit that happens in our life when we're born again? And then finally, Jesus, again, and we'll talk more about this next week in the, in the end of this passage, he, he points out that, that he's, he's special. He's not just a prophet or a rabbi. He's divine, he says it in verse 13. No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven. And who's that, Jesus? That's me, the Son of Man, Jesus says. So he says, I'm God. He says, and God's kingdom is now open to everyone if they're willing to look to me. And we're going to finish that thought. Jesus will continue on this next week. So where do we end this? Let's talk about our head, heart, and hands application for a second. Our head. If you didn't learn anything today but this, know this. Jesus changes you. Being born again is not just about getting you into heaven. Being born again is a radical transformation. It's the work of the Holy Spirit where he gives you new desires and new ambitions, new appetites, and he makes you willing to count the cost for the sacrifices that you'll make. Jesus changes you. It's all about Jesus. If you're there today and you want heart change, I'm just going to read a scripture to you. Revelation chapter 2, John again talking, and he's using the words of Jesus, quoting Jesus. He says, but I have this against you, talking to the church of Ephesus, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you, from where you have fallen. And then he says, repent and do the works you did at first. He says, 
you've lost your first love. You've abandoned your love for Jesus. And you could be doing a lot of other good things like Nicodemus. You could be chasing ministry opportunities in place of Jesus. You could be busy. You could just be running and doing stuff. You could be making excuses for your sins, thinking you're okay with that. And Jesus says, I need you to return to me, the author, as Hebrew says, of your faith and the finisher of your faith. Your eyes upon Jesus, your first love. And then hands. Here's what I want to encourage you to do. This is as practical as possible. Reach out for discipleship. Reach out for somebody within the body of Christ to help you along the way. To help you in this. Because following Jesus is not an individual sport. It's a team sport. And we have fight clubs. But here's where I want you to start. Go to your K-group leader. Tell your K-group leader, I need discipled. I need to be discipled. And, and maybe you're thinking, well, Pastor John, I, I know all the stuff. So did Nicodemus. I know all the right answers. I know all the stories. Here's how you gauge whether you've been discipled or not. All right, hear this. Can you reproduce yourself? And are you, I guess is a better way of saying, are you reproducing yourself in someone else? Because a true disciple makes disciples. Jesus said, go and make disciples. So if you feel equipped to make others disciples of Jesus, if you know the word and you're about reproducing yourself, then instead of finding somebody to disciple you, you go find somebody to disciple. But if you need that discipleship, if you need that continuing nurturing and help from someone, your K-group leader is the perfect person to start with. They're either an elder, most likely, or a deacon in this church. They're a spiritual leader who are living their lives in a way that should be an example to you, and they know the Word, and they can help you follow Jesus. And sure, just like I said about myself, they're not perfect. And if you wait to find the perfect elder in order to disciple you, you're not going to find them here at this church, okay? They're going to have sins and flaws just like you. But they're tracking with Jesus. They're getting up in the mornings, and they're spending time in His Word. They're loving Jesus. He's their first love. And so get discipled. So Jesus, it's all about him. Being a born again is all about him. Signs of life. Return to your first love. And then get discipled or disciple someone. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for your word that speaks with such authority, such power. I thank you that through a conversation that you had with a pretty impressive religious guy from many years ago that we can just learn so much and be challenged by your Holy Spirit. And God, help us to not get weary in well-doing. Help us to not get weary in learning truth. Help us not to get weary in service. But God, help that service to be about you and about pointing people to your greatness and your glory. May the the, 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 the floors that we sweep and the trash that we pick up be for your glory. May the conversations we have and the lunches we eat be for your glory. May the things that we do in discipleship and as we walk together with others in life and in marriage, God, help that to be done for your glory because it's all about you. Help us to be dead to ourselves and live out our identity, which is in you, that we no longer live, but you live in us. And help us to make an impact of this world that desperately needs to understand what real salvation 
And being born again, born from above, is really, really, truly about in Jesus' name.